Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Welcome to the Football Writers Podcast. Featuring me, Mike Calvin, Miguel Delaney of The Independent, and Tony Hodgson of the Coach's Voice platform. Football, as Jurgen Klopp once reminded us, is the most important of the least important things in life. In times such as these, it's a symbol of normality and resistance. There was a sense of inevitability about this morning's breaking news that this season's Champions League final has been moved to Paris from St. Petersburg. Much more on the implications of that later, but I'd like your instant reactions to it, chaps. Miguel, was that the right move, do you think? Definitely to move it from St. Petersburg, that was inevitable. UEFA had no choice. In fact, even before the actual the, the invasion started on Thursday morning, which of course we should, you know, has real-world consequences way beyond football, and football you know, pales next to it, but it will have a huge impact on the game as well. But even before that, it looked almost certain to be moved. This just made it a certainty. As much as anything else, there was a likelihood that you wouldn't, that basically the countries wouldn't have allowed their teams to travel to Russia, whatever about fans or anything like that which would have made it impossible before you get into the big discussion about football being played in a country that's at war with another UEFA member. So that was certain. As regards to the choice of Paris, I'm actually surprised they didn't wait until longer into the season because that had been mooted by a lot of people earlier in the week, including in UEFA. And so now, and now of course, we open up the possibility of PSG potentially having more or less a home game for the final. So I'm, I'm slightly surprised they didn't wait. But then on that, I suppose Paris, Paris hasn't had a Champions League final in 16 years. So maybe there was an inevitability about that. Certainly. Um, well, Jurgen Klopp, who we've already mentioned, Tony will obviously hope to be there with his Liverpool team, won't he? You know, more immediately, he's seeking his first domestic trophy in, in Sunday's League Cup final against Chelsea at Wembley. I know you know as well as I do, they're on a roll. They're chasing down Manchester City in the Premier League. They've scored a total of 106 goals along the way. Are you confident as a self-confessed Liverpool fan? When it comes to cup finals, Mike, I always remove all sense of confidence and just hope for the best. But I think there's no question in terms of if you look at the two teams in the final that Liverpool are currently going into it in the better form. You know, we talk about the amount of goals they scored. Joel Matip's goal against Leeds in midweek means that Liverpool have had 17 different scorers now this season. The threats seem to be coming from everywhere. And I think if you look uh, even dispassionately at Liverpool, they probably have the strongest squad now they've ever had in the Klopp reign. You know, we, we talk about 
you think about back to 2019, the, the semi-final Champions League win against Barcelona, two of the front three were missing from that game. And Diva Carigi and Jordan Shakiri started alongside Sadio Mane. Now we're looking at a possibility against Chelsea of also two of the front three this time, Jota and Firmino possibly missing. And now you look at a front three of Mane, Salah and Luis Diaz, who seems to have always been a Liverpool player even before he rocked up. He's taken to it so well. So, you know, Liverpool will start the game favourites. But Chelsea have given them problems before before Tuchel arrived and they'll, they'll give them problems again. So it's you can't just you can't rule out Chelsea, that's for certain. Sure. You know, when we look at Klopp, Megs, he's obviously overdue a domestic trophy, but he has the highest win percentage of any Liverpool manager. I think it's 59%. In your opinion, how does he compare with the greats in terms of impact, philosophy and achievement? Oh, right up there. I mean, I know Liverpool fans have already had a debate about whether Klopp is the greatest in their history. Now, that might seem a kind of... An out- an element of recency bias and kind of one of these modern discussions we have just because we're kind of dazzled by the last big thing. And certainly he would seem to pale next to Paisley Silverware Hall in particular or the way, or, or, or the, the trophies that Shankly won in, in initially building the, the modern Liverpool. But then the, the thing is, it's a fair discussion because they were totally different eras with totally different you know, financial structures. In fact, the financial structure of the games wasn't, wasn't the same concern because there was much more mobility within football. Shankly, of course, took over Liverpool in the second division. Whereas the situation Liverpool were in when Klopp took over, yes, they're, they're one of about, what, 14 clubs on the planet that are capable of having a huge global profile without, you know, a state takeover or anything like that. But even within that, they're some way behind those clubs owned by Qatar or by Abu Dhabi or even the huge money-making machine that Manchester United are. Or, of course, owned by an oligarch in in Abramovich's Chelsea. So for Klopp to have done what he's done in that context and to have put up these points halls in an era of this Manchester City is... It genuinely is up there with anything Paisley and, Sh- and Shankly did, or, or Dog Leash, Just like within the context of these. I mean, the point halls are remarkable. Liverpool basically shouldn't be able to get those returns on the resources they've got. It's it's incredible, and let's not forget either that if it wasn't for Klopp's Liverpool, Manchester City would have had a series of professions to, processions to the title. So it, it really, I mean, we are talking if if management is about the use of your available resources, Klopp has drastically overperformed. And that's despite only so far winning, in terms of major trophies, one league and one Champions League. When you look at the wider context of that and what he's done already, it really is remarkable. Mm. You know, in, in the context of big decisions, selection decisions, uh, Quivin Kelleher looks likely, Tony, to start in goal instead of Alisson. Is that admirable trust in a, in a young player or an avoidable risk? You could argue that it's both, Mike, couldn't you? Kelleher is, is, is definitely relatively unproven in comparison to Alisson, who's one of the world's great goalkeepers, I would think. I don't think anyone would really dispute that, despite the fact he does throw in the occasional blip. But Kelleher's done very little wrong in the games he started for Liverpool. And he played at Stamford Bridge earlier in the season when, when Alisson was uh, out with COVID. He got beat that day by a Kovacic wonder strike and a, and a, and a Christian Pulisic goal that I think probably didn't, didn't, didn't do anything wrong for. So... 
I think if you, you know, there's an argument of, or maybe we'll talk about it a bit in terms of Lukaku for Chelsea, there's an argument of you're in a cup final, you pick your strongest team, don't you? And nobody would have Kelleher in Liverpool's strongest team. But then Klopp wants to develop a young goalkeeper who's shown a lot of talent, a lot of ability, and having him play in a cup final probably increases his value going forward to any potential buyer as well, particularly if Liverpool win. And I think the way Liverpool are defending at the moment, the way they're playing games and, and certainly controlling games, Alisson hasn't had an awful lot to do in a few games recently. And I think Klopp may be thinking that hopefully, with a bit of luck, it'll be the same on Sunday. I'm sure Chelsea will have something to say about that, though. Yeah, you mentioned Lukaku there. So, Megs, do you reprieve him or do you continue with Havertz as a, as a false nine? I have to say, and I've watched a lot of Tuchel's Chelsea over the past two years, while... I mean, it's one of those situations where, where two things can be true. Lukaku's omission and his general form for Chelsea has led to, I think, a bit of unfair debate about how, oh, United were right, he's not, he's not up to it, he's only good in the Italian league. I, I think there's a lot of context here that needs to be appreciated. And for the moment, he just doesn't fit with what Tuchel wants. Now, people around Chelsea and around Lukaku would put up a lot of explanations that from the fact that he, he both needs to be fully fit to be at his best and also both needs to he's one of these players who responds to positive encourage or positive reinforcement should I say and so far he also needs a lot of time to click with teammates and so far that's all been disrupted by everything from injuries to to COVID some of it self-enforced given that uh, interview he gave but it has meant we have the situation now where it there's just a bit of a disconnect he doesn't have those relationships with his teammates in terms of understanding on the pitch and the end result is for the moment I think Chelsea are just a much more cohesive unit and much closer to what Tuchel wants with Havertz in the team. That doesn't necessarily mean it's going to be the case indefinitely. I think Lukaku can still be a huge success at Chelsea. But right now, they they just look a kind of a, a more fluid team with Havertz. And it's going to, yeah, it's going to lead to a big decision on Sunday. And it's, it's hard. I mean, on Wednesday, or sorry, on Tuesday for the Champions League game, Tuchel said that he, the only reason Lukaku didn't play was because he wanted to take him out of the fire after all the commotion about the seven touches against Crystal Palace. I know some people close to Lukaku aren't so convinced by the explanation, but Sunday will tell an awful lot. Yeah, it certainly will. Do you think, Tony, it's time to give credit to one particular player? I'm speaking of or thinking of uh, Cesar Aspilicueta here. Now, He's a great leader, dynamic player, consistent, yet there's still speculation that it will be surplus at the end of the season. You know, Barcelona are reportedly interested in him. If Thiago can be so productive at 37, why the rush to get rid of him? Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there's a few things to consider with Aspilicueta, and, and, and kind of historically, he, he was signed for an alleged £7 million, which in the grand scheme of modern transfer fees seems like one of the absolute snips of the century so far. He's incredibly versatile. When he first broke into the team, he basically replaced Ashley Cole, a left-back, which I think a lot of people forget. Then when Antonio Conte came in, he ended up playing on the right of a back three. He mostly played at right-back probably over the course of his whole time at Chelsea. But wherever he's played, he's done a phenomenal job. As you say, he's an incredible leader, brilliant influence. I mean, we saw he hit the headlines in the Club World Cup for taking the pressure off Havertz by taking the ball and making it look like he was about to take the penalty which was kind of great to see, great fun. But actually, I think back, as I often do to the game at Anfield earlier in the season, when Chelsea went down to 10 men, Reese James got sent off, and Aspilicueta in the second half gave an absolute masterclass. 
of cynicism. He took minutes over throw-ins. He went in, he went down injured. He was in the ref's ear constantly. It was Chelsea actually played that game pretty well. They, they probably didn't need that, but he just delivered what was required at the time for his team. So in terms of leadership, in terms of influence, there's absolutely no question what he has. I guess the point about Thiago is that Thiago's playing in a position in the centre of that back three where his legs are less important than his timing, his experience, his positioning. I guess if Aspilicueta going forward is going to play either on the right of a back three or a right wing back, as he's done to cover for James recently, there are more question marks about ageing legs. But if I was a Chelsea fan, I'd want him to, I'd still want him to be there next season. Mm, sure. Yeah, you mentioned Conte in passing there. So Migs, we might as well you know, address his latest outburst. You know, I think things will probably become a, a bit clearer later today. We're speaking before his pre-match press conference for the uh, game at Leeds in the uh, BT Sports Saturday lunchtime game. What did you make of it all? And do you think he's likely or even unlikely to be at Spurs next season? I actually don't think he can be ruled out that he quits before the end of the season. I don't think that's a certainty by any means. But <laughs> let, let us put it like this. In terms of likelihoods of scenario, I would go, first of all, he leaves in the summer. I think that's the most likely. Second, he sees out the season and calms a bit and stays the next season. And third, but I wouldn't put this this one that far away from the idea of him staying next year. He leaves at some point before the, before the end of this season. And, I mean, those three scenarios are all quite huge swings. But then this is a man who's been responsible for huge swings and emotions in the last few days, let alone the last few weeks. I mean, on Wednesday evening, I was, I was actually I was in Atletico Madrid Stadium and one of the lads, Mark Critchley, who works for me, he was sent a, a picture of basically Conte on Tuesday, on Tuesday afternoon where he's beaming, smiling, and then one right beside of Conte, given his, given his post-match interview after the Burnley game. And, you know, the difference is remarkable. That's just 24 hours apart. But, of course, <laughs> not only is Conte's histrionics predictable, so is this whole situation where I think nearly everyone said it, that after the City win, it would be so Spurs, and so modern Spurs particularly, to go and lose to Burnley. And it's probably that as much as anything that has aggravated Conte. And, I mean, it, it, all, all of this, of course, also ties into the previous week. I mean, in, in the build-up to the City game, obviously, given that series of interviews in Italy, and just between the interviews coming out and the win over City, there had been a slight attempt to play all this down. Say, oh, the interviews, actually, if you read them, they're not that bad. The tone isn't, is, you know, everything he says is fine. But, I mean, inherent to those interviews was the idea that he's not happy. And he made that then abundantly clear after the game on Wednesday. Everyone's known him for quite some time that he almost regrets taking the job. I mean, my opinion is that, and it was a somewhat informed opinion, is he took it because he was irritated the, that he knew he wasn't going to get the Manchester United job in October, November. And the, the timing certainly sinks up now. He obviously wanted to get back into football as well. And, and there is the Premier League. Ultimately, he's taken a job that he would consider below his abilities. And it's certainly one that if a better offer came along, he'd jump at it. But it might just be so irritating a situation that it isn't impossible that he leaves. Now, given the way Leeds' season has gone and recent results, you would think Spurs should get a win this weekend and everything will be calmed. But then this is also Spurs. 
That's true. Coaches are your um, stock in trade, Tony. You know, we've got two clubs and two coaches at the crossroads here in that uh, Saturday lunchtime game, haven't we? Let's look at Marcello Bielsa. Is he the coach for a crisis? Because let's face it, Leeds are, there's certainly an incipient crisis beginning to build there, isn't there? Yeah, there is. I was looking at, I was comparing, obviously, the, the, the news or the, the main editorial lines come out of the Liverpool game from a Leeds point of view was that they've now conceded more goals in the Premier League this season than they did across the whole of last season. Now, it hasn't been the case for the whole season this year, but currently the heart of the team that did so well last season has been ripped out. Liam Cooper's not available at the back, Calvin Phillips and Patrick Bamford. So you've got that entire line down the middle. You go back to Melier, the goalkeeper, who kind of at times looks a bit like rabbit in the headlights. He's taking so much flack, albeit playing quite well. The question mark for Bielsa is, does he change? You know, we, we talk about coaches being able to, to adapt to different situations. Bielsa, of all the coaches in the world currently, not that we hear from him very often, but when we do, there's never any sense that he's going to change his style of play, change his philosophy, change the principles that he that he's wedded to. Now, that makes having a chat with a few of my team earlier in the week and we were saying if there's one if you were forced to watch only one Premier League team all season who would it be and the answer's probably Leeds because they're absolute gold dust to watch their games are hilarious <laughs> they are entertaining to the point of being hilarious apart from for everyone apart from the Leeds fans who are currently starting to really <laughs> worry about about the future and for the first time I've seen the Leeds fan base kind of they're never going to turn on Bielsa let's, let's make that clear they love what he's done for the club they love the, the feel of the club is the most positive Leeds as a club and a city has probably been since they won the, the old first division, which is 30 years ago. But they are, as, as Burnley and Norwich and even Watford put together a couple of results, Newcastle obviously are, are, are improving. They are looking over their shoulder and they're getting worried. And the nature of the result, I don't, you know, a 6-0 defeat Anfield is not going to decide whether Leeds go stay up or go down but the difficulty is that they're just shipping goals in every game the, the, the fiction I would look at for Leeds fans and worry was the Villa game where they were brilliant for half an hour and somehow found themselves 3-1 down in about 10 minutes now they fought back to get a point against a team who are actually in poor form at the moment and struggling but they just cannot stop conceding goals he won't change the way they play they have this man-for-man system in defence which means that occasionally you get centre-halves like Joel Matip just strolling through and scoring basically unmarked in the middle of an 80-yard run. And Leeds fans look at that and go, how can this be? Last season, they drew at home with Liverpool. They won at Man City. You know, they got good results against the better teams. This year, apart from one win away at West Ham, they've beaten some probably inferior teams. And otherwise, it's been pretty dismal. So, and obviously, there have been names linked. You know, Jesse Marsh has been linked with replacing Bielsa, whether it's in the summer or, or even earlier. Who knows? He's out of a job at the moment and, and probably looking. But this is a very long-winded way of saying that no, Bielsa's not going to change his style. And if I were Leeds fans, I'd be worried. Yeah, well, only Norwich have a worse goal difference. Do you, do you agree that uh, there's a real threat of relegation, Migs? Yeah, I do. It does feel like the way it's playing out, it's going to be Watford and Norwich. Although I wouldn't completely rule them out, staying up. But those two and one other. Burnley are suddenly developing momentum. And it's interesting, actually, that um, <laughs> signing... We, we all praise Newcastle signing of Woods in terms of weakening a relegation rival. But <laughs> in terms... Of, that, that led to them getting Veghorst, who could who looks like he could well keep Burnley up. And certainly, he's added their momentum. They look like true Burnley again. As, as often happens, 
Newcastle have a pretty high quality of squad, even if there are a lot of questions. Everton have a high quality of squad, even though there are questions. Brentford need to look there as well. But in terms of that sort of negative momentum, it does feel like it's on Leeds at the moment. And they certainly need at least some of those players back. They need to arrest this. And they, cause at the moment, they just look, look like such a free hit. And as Tony alluded to there, there's such an understandable loyalty to Bielsa that it does feel like they'll just stick with him, even if there's a sense it's going stale. I mean, I've already seen a few people moot the idea that they they, they, they they wouldn't even sack him to get the kind of new manager bounce that. I'm not even, even if that's a myth, just the jolt that comes with just a change of manager, just because the, to, the club is so indebted to him. And that, that is natural. But it, it's also fair to question at this point whether, whether, whether it has maybe run its course. Well, he's there three years now and in the modern game. And in fact, this is actually true of most football history, whatever the modern game. Coaching cycles tend to only last three to four years. I mean, it was always Ferguson's great maximum. At Manchester United, they didn't change the manager. He had the license to change a core of the team to kind of really freshen things up. Uh, Bielsa hasn't been able to do that. It, what is so impressive about the job is actually a core of that team is still actually the team that he took over in the middle of the championship, which speaks to just what a good job he's done and why and how Leeds are actually still outperforming. But there is an opportunity to stay in the Premier League, and there are big questions now whether he can kind of galvanise them or re-energise them to actually stay up. Yeah, well, the relegation battle is evolving and it's drawing more teams in. Watford are at home to Manchester United on Sunday, Tony. Did you, like me, see some pretty ominous signs in that 4-1 home defeat by Palace in midweek? Yeah, particularly as Palace are a team that have played really well this season without getting the results they've deserved. So suddenly to get a tonking by a team like Palace does ring the alarm bells a little bit. They, they, they can't doesn't seem like they can stop shipping goals, which, you know, one thing that Roy Hodgson will always bring is organisation. I think if you look at what the job he did at Palace in, in the last few years, it was just being strong, difficult to beat, not conceding many goals. He's done that a couple of times at Watford, obviously kept a couple of clean sheets, which they hadn't done for about 35 years before then in the Premier League, had they? <laughs> and had a great result at Villa, although as, as I've already alluded to before, at the moment, getting a good result against Villa at the moment isn't necessarily the the, the the plus point it may look like, but the question for Watford is: Can they keep a, Can they keep it tight at the back while creating chances at the other end? And the evidence is that they're going to struggle to do that. They've got good quality. We know about Dennis and Saar going forward. They've probably got a Championship level defence, haven't they? And like you say, I guess the, the the one the one the one thing they can look at is that it is getting tighter. They have had a couple of good results, and there are teams above them who seem to be careering downwards. But I think if you were going to, if you were a betting man and you wanted to pick a team that would go down this season, Watford would probably be among the three. Mm, yeah, to correct myself, you know, uh, Manchester United are at home on on Sunday. Speaking of them, Migs, your perspective on them? I saw you, um, you know, maybe went slightly over the ball in a piece earlier in the week. What about the problems of, that Ranić has experienced, and also the technical squad, uh, the technical quality of the squad that he's actually inherited? I think he's got big issues there. But I think actually he's done relatively well considering the situation, which is basically, as I wrote in that piece in the build-up to the game, a culmination of nine years of bad decisions and dysfunction. And like at the, at, near the start of that piece, I kind of totted up a few of the, th- just a, a few of the biggest things that are affecting United, right down from 
you know, where they are at the table, say to the squad, the, the CEO having or eventually leaving and not even able to gloss over the fact that he's been a failure. And the word that repeatedly came up, I spoke to a lot of people of that piece, and the word that, or the words that repeatedly came up were chaos and circus. And the big issue that Rangnick has is basically he's trying to impose a very specific ideology, which is based on ball-orientated pressing from that German school. And very few of this squad have actually any experience in being coached in that. I mean, a lot of them have been at Manchester United for a long time. And in that time, they've had two coaches who, by the time Manchester United appointed them, were, with the greatest respect in the world, has been to the top level. Their peaks had come way before. Then two managers who were probably never at that top level, in Solskjaer and Moyes. Whatever about kind of respect you can have for Moyes' career beyond United. And then, and then even some of the players who have experienced the top level, like Ronaldo, like Varane, it's never been in systems like this. And there are questions about actually where they are in their career, where both have physical issues right now. So like, the way it was put to me is the two players that are best geared towards Rangnick's football are Sancho, whose evolution we've already seen, and Alanga, who I don't think it's an exaggeration to say, even beyond his goal, he transformed the game on Wednesday. It's why Rangnick loves him, because he has that energy and he's willing to press. He was willing to follow in tactical instructions and he has become an example for the other players in that regard. And he's one of the few that could well ensure United do just about enough to to maybe get through Atletico Madrid and also finish in the top four in the league. Although it does look like that's developing into a straight fight now between Arsenal and United. Yeah, sure. And, you know, speaking of Elanga, I thought it was really significant that, that Ranić spoke about him playing with joy. And I think the quote was, I wish some other players would look at him as an example. It is a you know, notoriously leaky dressing room. The latest missive is that sources are saying that the players don't like Ranić shouting. Given all that stuff going on, and again, this is your domain, Tony, who do you think would be the best manager for United to appoint in the summer? Obviously, Pochettino's been mentioned, Ten Hag. Who else? I mean, yeah, they're, they're the two names that keep cropping up. And it's actually interesting from a bit of a bit of personal anecdote on the Coaches Voice website. We we have profiles of many of the world's leading coaches, most of them, and, and our profile of Eric Ten Hag is consistently the most viewed at the moment, which suggests that there are people out there who are looking at him, whether that's fans or people I don't know. But, um, I mean, the job he's done at Ajax twice, actually, rebuilding <laughs> from, from the squad that should have got to the Champions League final to, to where they are now, who are going deep again, probably, that you'd expect them to... to, to go through Benfica in the second leg of their last 16 tie. But is again, as, as Mig says, is, you know, Ten Hag works in a very specific structure at Ajax, which is set up to, to get the best out of both him and the squad. And at the moment, that doesn't exist at United. Ragnik was brought in supposedly to try and instill that, but as manager on a short contract and then as consultant on for however many months or years after that, and there's certainly question marks over that, Ragnik has a Definite. We've talked about him so many times here, haven't we? But he has a very mm. definite style of play. Mig's already alluded to it. So if he's going to act as a consultant on the new manager, then surely it's going to be he's going to be looking for a manager in his image. You might go to go back to the, the, the Red Bull world. There's a few out there. Roger Schmidt, someone like Matthias Yesler, who's doing a great job at Salzburg. United probably wouldn't be overexcited by either of those. 
people have talked about Pochettino for so long, and we, we've talked about ourselves. But again, he's a he's a project manager. He's not going to come in and play the exact same way that Ragnik's trying to get this current set of players to play. And then there's the there's the the question mark about Conte. You know, is is you never know, do you? He's is is part of his recent antics knowledge that actually that job might be available in the summer and that he'd fancy it a bit more than he currently fancies Spurs. So I don't know. I mean, I, the, in, in terms of that, you look from the outside and I don't have a huge amount of internal knowledge of it, but you look at the outside and you get the impression there's not a huge amount of love going from coach and coaching staff to players or vice versa at United. That's a major issue that any manager coming in is going to have to deal with pretty quickly. Pochettino's ability to bring a squad together and a set of players together, the, the, the team and the squad and the morale he built at Tottenham would, would suggest that he has the ability to do that. But there's a lot of factions and moods and characters in that dressing room that will make it a damn sight harder than it was at Tottenham. So it's a really tough job for whoever goes in. And I don't, I personally can't imagine whoever goes in succeeding straight away. In more immediate terms, Migs, you know, Arsenal... They're almost in pole position for fourth now. And okay, they're a point behind United, but they have two games in hand. What was the significance, do you think, of Thursday night's late win over Wolves? Well, absolutely huge. In fact, it probably pretty much set this race now, especially with Spurs dropping off and given the damage to Wolves and with West Ham dropping off as well. It maybe shaped the rest of the season and shaped this into a straight race between. Manchester United and Arsenal. But also, I think it was so crucial for the psychology of the Arsenal team, for the development, because it would have felt so typically Arsenal, and it's a typically recent Arsenal, for them to drop, just when they had a bit of momentum, just when things started to be opening out and the initiative was theirs, they let it drop. And instead, they did the complete opposite and claimed a massively significant win with the nature of it only kind of fortifying this momentum around the team. So it was absolutely huge. Looking a bit further up the table, Manchester City are at Everton at the weekend. Is this particularly bad timing for Frank Lampard, given you know City's defeat by Spurs? Possibly. Although it's interesting looking at Lampard's results so far at Everton. Two home games, two wins. Two away games, two away defeats. And kind of goals everywhere. Like I don't think Frank Lampard teams are ever going to be boring to watch which is probably better news for Man City because you'd feel like Everton are probably quite fragile at the back and will concede goals. Goodison's a tough place to go. There is a certain amount of optimism around the place at the moment after Lampard's arrival. I'm not sure whether that's more about his arrival or Rafa Benitez's departure, to be honest, but the Everton fans can can turn pretty quickly. But I think at the moment, they're very much behind Lampard. Goodison's one of those old creaking grounds, isn't it? It's still an absolute joy where the, the fans are really on top of the players and it, it can be quite a cauldron when they get when they get behind the team. City are too old and grizzled to worry too much about that, I think. So I personally would expect City to go there and win. Mm. When do you think is the fairest time to judge Deli Alley and, and, and Van der Beek, Migs? Probably, to be fair, maybe a month into next season because they really have come into such a volatile scenario at Everton and really anything Everton get out of them, I think at the moment, is a bonus. But hopefully they get enough. That it just or for Everton that it keeps them up. Now there are some signs that that might be what we see from Van der Beek. He's been quite impressive so far, mm. and and to be fair to Lampard, who I do have some reservations about as a manager, it does speak to him in terms of how because he really targeted the Van der Beek signing. With Ali, we've so far to wait a little longer, 
But yeah, I think they've, they've come in it's such a, a situation of flux and everything that it's probably not fair to, to to fully judge them until they've had a bit of time there and one where it's a, it was a bit settled. But I suppose they'll be very much hoping that the time that settles is uh, a summer where they're preparing for the Premier League rather than the Championship because I don't think we'll get a real assessment of players like Deli Ali or uh, Van der Beek in the Championship either. Mm. You look at Brentford, they've come up from the Championship. Have they lost momentum at the worst possible time, do you think, uh, Tony? Yeah, it's a worry, isn't it? They, they haven't won in the league since they beat Villa. I'm saying since they beat Villa, about a lot of things today, <laughs> aren't I? Um, yeah, they haven't won since... That was January the 2nd, which is also the last time they scored more than one goal in a Premier League game. They, I mean, I, we, Thomas Frank is a very impressive manager who's done a really good job there, isn't short of confidence in himself or his players. So I don't think morale will be a problem. The, the Ivan Tony incident, shall we call it, recently won't have done anyone any favours. But actually, Tony's been in pretty good goal-scoring form recently. Brentford's next three league games are Newcastle, Norwich and Burnley. If they get a couple of wins out of there, then suddenly the gaps to the bottom three looks quite big again. Um, That's their season, isn't it? it? I mean, if they don't, if they get, if, if those results don't go for them, then you start to really worry for them. But I think they've contributed both as a team and a, and a coach in Thomas Frank. I think they've been a re- really good contributor to the Premier League this season, and I'd, I'd be hopeful of them staying up. Yeah, it it promises to be an emotional occasion because it looks like at some stage Christian Eriksen will make his debut against Newcastle. Looking at the evolution of Newcastle under Eddie Howe, Migs, do you feel they actually tightened up at the back and they, they're better defensively than they were? Yeah, I, I don't think you can deny that. Now, they have, of course, raised the individual quality of that back line quite significantly and quite expensively, and that will have an effect. Although I think you probably do have to give testaments to Howe's coaching, but it's one of those situations where <laughs> it's difficult to divorce one from the other. Um, and what would would Howe's coaching have had the same effect with the same quality of players? Because it doesn't. It didn't look like that was the case right into mid March. And ultimately, the massive differential down there has been that Newcastle have basically spent an awful lot of money. But that, that I mean, there's no getting away from it. That is the biggest factor, and I think that has been the biggest factor in how uh, they have tightened up. And I have to say, it, it, it's it's been a while that. Uh, it's been a while now that I think Newcastle are probably out of danger. I think they've just got the the overall level of their squad is now it's it's taking it, the spending has taken it to a much higher level than those around them, and that they should be safe. They'll either have enough goals or not concede enough, but but who knows? Yeah, well, that money represents new ownership. The new ownership represents the controversy that can be associated with sport from external factors, you know, in Newcastle's case, their associations with uh, Saudi Arabia. Let's end, if we could, by looking at, you know, the implications of this morning's decisions by UEFA, almost beyond that decision to move the Champions League final to Paris. Specifically, Tony, uh, Russian and Ukrainian clubs and national teams who are competing in UEFA competitions are going to be required to play their home matches at neutral venues until further notice. You know, that's the least that could have happened, isn't it? Yeah, and it's just, it's, it's, really, it's really grim that that even has to be considered, let alone put through as a bare minimum. I think... I mean, you can look at this two ways. You know, you can either completely divorce kind of sport from geopolitics and say that the two just can't be connected and we need to keep them as separate as possible, in which case 
you know, these teams have to continue playing in these competitions and, and obviously for security's sake can't go anywhere near their home grounds. Should there be a question mark over over Russian teams being thrown out of competitions? I mean, you know, <laughs> I mean, I, I'm not an expert in world politics, but I can't imagine the, the, the ejection of a couple of Russian teams from a football tournament that's really going to change the course of Vladimir Putin's thinking. So you end up thinking, well, we just have to crack on and do the best we can within the construct of, of what is currently going on in the world. That's a, quite a flimsy answer, but I'm not really sure what else we can say about it at the moment. Mm, well, you know, sport does seem irrelevant in these sort of times, but can football, you know, do more? Do you think, Migs, to counter the implied, at least, influence of, of, of Russia, both in terms of financial uh, and political influence within the game? Well, I've just done a big piece on this this morning about how you, you know just just as the this invasion is changing the world, it's going to inevitably change football because there is so much Russian influence at all corners from the top of the game to the very bottom. And like even though, as I wrote in the piece, you know, a lot, a lot of people in football talk about rivers of uh, unofficial Russian money running through the game, keeping it afloat in some corners. And this is all over Europe. It's possible that this whole situation will expose that, especially if the uh, sanctions get more severe, as we expect. But what, what the whole situation should do then is it, it should expose football's troublingly laissez-faire attitude to where the money comes from. I mean, it, it almost seems like in every situation in football, there are never any questions asked. Just, and we can actually see the latest now is just this rush to get involved in these cryptocurrency deals. With no, you know, no apparent awareness about the wider debates and whether, because what's happening there is basically a sport as popular as football is through these deals, it even unconsciously encourages its fans through their love of the game to get involved in an unregulated financial industry without maybe the necessary expertise to do so. With the, the, the some, the, the wider point being that. Never at any point does it feel like the game asks these questions. It's just if there's mo- if there's money there, more o- more likely than not, it'll be taken. If, if even if, and even if one corner of the game has moral reservations, another won't. And it's possible this whole situation, the crisis, will will expose will expose this. I mean, it, it it seems unlikely that the lessons will be learned, but certainly this is going to have a huge repercussion for football in itself. That, that is the question, though, Meg, isn't it? Will it will it have those repercussions? Because, like you say, football does a brilliant job of turning a blind eye. And depending on where the money is, you know, at the moment, Chelsea fans will be possibly worried about any any implications on sanctions against Abramovich. Newcastle fans, historically, if the if the Saudi Arabian money was going to Burnley, I'm sure they've had a different view on it than, than it is. It's just football just constantly turns a blind eye both within the clubs and the and the the, the governing bodies. So. Even though you feel like it should, something as huge as this should have an impact, will it? Well, I mean, ultimately, the real issue is that if money, if if one source of source of money falls apart, another just replaces it. Yeah, and then it's it's across the board, isn't it? You know, it's not just football. You look at the way that the IOC, for instance, appeased yeah. Russia. You know, very very and, recently. And, and, and let's be fair, society. I mean, and in that sense, football is just a reflection of society. In fact, it almost. We, I was actually talking this with some journalist colleagues and we were discussing all this yesterday, where <laughs> football, basically, covering the game, does gives you, it gives you a fair map that you can almost trace over the world of where 
A, the, the power lies, and B, the flow of questionable money around the world, because both of those land on football often, often, and show their influence often before you see it elsewhere. Yeah, well, when you think about the, the level at which you know, these big decisions are being made, you know, the UEFA president, Alexander Seferin, uh, met with the French president, Emmanuel Macron, yesterday to agree that plan to move it to Paris. So it is big picture stuff. What about FIFA, Tony? Um, you know, a mutual friend of all of ours, Rob Harris, skewered Gianni Infantino yesterday on a Zoom call by by asking him if he was going to keep the Order of Friendship medal given to him by by Vladimir Putin. FIFA have got an issue to to deal with as well around the World Cup playoffs, haven't they? They've got a huge a huge problem to deal with and I think I think there are very few things as a group that we enjoy more than Rob Harris skewering Infantino. It's not the first time he's done it, is it? But it's a perfectly valid, as ever with Rob, it's a perfectly valid question, and there, there wasn't a particularly strong answer. I think Russia are due to play Poland, aren't they, in the World Cup playoffs? Which is, you know, Poland are a nation not that far geographically from from Russia, who have their own history and for very good reasons don't want to go anywhere near Russia. But again, it boils back to where, where you know there are different questions: where are those games going to be played? Should they be played at all? Should Russia be involved at all? I mean, we see from the Olympics, don't we? From the recent Winter Olympics, there just seems to be whatever Russia do, whether it's an alleged kind of state doping, the athletes end up competing under some banner, whether they win a medal or not, <laughs> mm. whether they finish in the top three or not. So governing bodies don't have a, a great record at dealing with Russia particularly. They're not so, not so slow to impose sanctions on smaller nations with other problems. So I don't know what the answer is. FIFA being FIFA, probably... Not that much will happen, the bare minimum will happen, the games will take place in a neutral venue, and then they'll kick the can of whether Russia should appear at the World Cup at all a bit further down the road, probably quietly hoping they don't qualify, and then if they do, they're going to have to cross that bridge when they come to it, but that's quite a FIFA thing to do, isn't it? Mm, yeah, I think the thing about sport, it has so many personal reference points, doesn't it? You know, I can still remember you know, England losing uh, in the Donbass arena, and also you know, you think about you know, European Cup finals in, in you know, Kiev, what are your memories of of sport and football in particular in in the Ukraine mix? Because you know they're pretty poignant and, and pertinent now, aren't they? Oh yeah, totally, and possibly, and I suppose actually this this somewhat speaks to the the, the wider situation. And again, in what we're talking about, how football will have echoes of history in that way, or or the way the world is going, where say in nineteen eighty six or or nineteen eighty eight. I'm probably one of the first Russian teams, or maybe the second Russian team after the 1960s, to really entrance the wider football public for the way they played. Was uh, it was yeah that team in '86 and '88. But of course, it wasn't really a Russian team. It was almost a completely Dynamo Kiev team. Uh, it was Lobanovsky's Kiev. That was basically the core of the whole side. Most of their famous players and and a lot of people who are a lot of players who would have identified as Ukrainian rather than Russian. And that, that was, I mean, they're a spectacular side to watch. A little bit before my ear, but obviously in the job I, I do, I have had to kind of, you know, read into them, look at them and, and write the odd piece about them. The one I really remember is the brilliant Kiev team from the late 90s with Shevchenko and Rebrov, which were got to the Champions League semi-finals in 99, probably up there at Manchester United, not quite as good as United, but up there as one of the uh, one of Europe's best teams at that moment. The season before, Shevchenko launched himself with a hat trick at Camp Nou, 
And, and then, I mean, it always felt like that Ukraine team maybe should have kicked on a little bit earlier then. But then in 2006, they kind of announced themselves. They finally got that achievement that they wanted with the um, reaching the uh, the quarterfinals of the World Cup. Then they had that great, okay, they, did, they didn't qualify from the group of the tournament they hosted in 2012. But we still had a, a beautiful moment when Shevchenko, the great hero, scored in Kiev in that 2-1 group, group game win over Sweden. And then, of course, it came full circle. Right? It was actually Shevchenko managed them to a quarterfinal last summer to be knocked out by England. Now, they're beating 4-0, but still, I think, given the youth of that side, it was a testament to their development. And at the moment, a lot of people in football talk about this Ukraine team being one to watch for the future. And, of course, as you say, it's just I've been to Kiev twice, both for Euro 2012 and for the 2018 Champions League final. And from a sporting perspective, whatever about the, kind of, the beauty and culture of the place, you, you can feel it as a sporting city. And there's a lot of reminders of kind of the great Kiev teams of the past. And yeah, and it, as you say, it's impossible. I mean, we, when, when horrible situations like this arise, there's always a natural human tendency to relate it to yourself. But it is impossible. Like we, we, when, I, when I was watching some of those scenes over the, over the last few days, it's impossible not to picture yourself having, having been there and, having, and what, why you were there, which in our case what, what, was sport. Yeah, you do you relate to that, Tony? Yeah, hundred percent, hundred percent. And it's crazy just to look at the scene yesterday and think this. You know, I think I think back to kind of World Cups when I was growing up and think about kind of Yugoslavia as a team and the, the great team that they had based around a number of Croatians. And then suddenly you think these these countries get erased from the map. And you know, this is the nature of human history, isn't it? It's I think we we tend to think that everything is non-changing when in fact things are ever changing. But in situations like this, it just feels so so very sad for the Ukrainian people and yeah you know sport brings people together in a way that very few things do football is is the, the greatest of those sports at doing that and if you think about what Ukraine achieved in the Euros last year and you just think well what suddenly is the future for this kind of young exciting team and you know in the coaching style just it's just it all pales into insignificance really but obviously these are the things that you that you found your knowledge in and so they're the things you think about I think ultimately you just have to hope for a swift and positive resolution to what is a really, really horrific situation. Yeah, true. We, you know, as we've discussed, uh, football has a significance beyond its status as a as a mere football game. And in my opinion, that's why it's right that it's being used as part of sanctions against Russia. You know, some might disagree with me, but sporting sanctions do work. I saw firsthand how they emphasised the isolation of apartheid South Africa it created a climate that helped to stimulate change. Now, sport, like many areas of life, as we've discussed, has been contaminated by Russia's commercial muscle. And that tends to come at a price. This, though, is a chance for clubs and specifically governing bodies to recalibrate. I hope they take that opportunity. In the meantime, thanks to Miguel and Tony for their insight. And as we all pray for peace, thank you for listening to the Football Writers Podcast.